And the foolish said to the prudent, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the prudent answered, saying, No, there will not be enough for us. And you too, go instead to the dealers and buy some for yourselves. And while they were going away to make the purchase, the bridegroom came. And those who were ready went in with him to the wedding feast, and the door was shut. And later the other virgins also came, saying, Lord, Lord, open up for us. But he answered and said, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Be on the alert then, for you do not know the day nor the hour. Having answered the disciples' questions in chapter 24 concerning the nature and duration of Israel's desolation and the signs of his coming, and having warned them about the tribulation, especially the tribulation generation, that they needed to be sober and alert and faithful and sensible, he continues now this theme of preparedness in chapter 25 by using this parable of the ten virgins. And I might add that this underscores the enormous concern that Jesus has for the self-deceived, those who profess Christ but do not possess him, those who call him Lord but will never enter the kingdom a most solemn subject that may well apply to you. Throughout his ministry, Jesus has exhorted each individual person on their own to search for the narrow gate of salvation. And he has told us that few will find it. It will require careful inquiry. It will require self-denial. It will require examination. It's not something that you just stumble into. And then when it is found, we are commanded to enter it, knowing full well that it will be demanding. It will not be easy, requiring a squeezing or a groaning or a striving, literally, in the original language. For example, Jesus said in Luke 13, 24, Strive to enter the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. Well, why will some not be able to enter? Well, because the cost will be too high. So they'll try to enter in another way, through the broad way, which is available to many. Of course, it will not lead to heaven. Many will want to bring with them their pride and their lusts and the baggages of sin because they will refuse to rid themselves of the worldly desires, the worldly pleasures that tend to captivate them. And for many, it will simply be too hard to endure Satan's opposition to the truth. It will be too hard to endure the rejection of family and friends, because indeed following Christ may cost us our life. And so many will choose the wide gate that has no restrictions, the wide gate that makes no demands, but still promises heaven. And unfortunately, this is the sad legacy of modern evangelism, where in many cases, religious salesmen apply very sophisticated techniques to somehow 
manipulate crowds so that people will make a decision for Christ. And often they do that with no real understanding of the high cost and the infinite value of following Jesus. Many people will have no grasp of the holiness of God, that somehow they have violated His holy law. They will have no grasp of the offensiveness of their sin. In many cases, there's no need to acknowledge that one is utterly unable to save him or herself, but rather all you have to do is whisper a prayer or repeat some prayer or walk an aisle and and these types of things, raise a hand or whatever. No need to really, really repent. Many people will not even know what that means. No need for mourning over sin and hungering and thirsting for righteousness, for ongoing confession, for longing to be like Christ and to have a desire to live for the glory of God. And then through emotional manipulation, many modern evangelists are able to stampede herds of unbelievers through the wide gates of cheap grace and easy believism. And then any positive response to Jesus is quickly interpreted as a genuine profession of saving faith. And I fear that contemporary evangelicalism has mastered the art of making the gate of conversion as wide as possible, as easy as possible, to make it as non-offensive as possible so that the masses can feel comfortable as they are herded through it making the way of following Christ so broad that, in many cases, obedience is merely optional. And as a result, then, these people will attach themselves to the church. And any church will do, as long as it's a church that will make you feel good, as long as it's a church that doesn't put any demands on you, as long as it's a church that is tolerant and so on, And then what you end up having is a church that is filled with tares among the wheat. And unfortunately, these people end up teaching Sunday school, singing in the choir, sometimes filling pulpits. And as I study the Bible and observe the Christian landscape in these last days of Laodicean apostasy, I have become increasingly more convinced that the ultimate deception of Satan is to create a religious environment and a religious culture that will convince people they are saved when in fact they are not. This is profession without possession. And because of this tragic deception, many people are therefore unprepared to meet the Savior. And this is the theme of this parable. Now, let me give you the setting of the parable. It is that of a Jewish marriage and a wedding ceremony. And as I give you some of this background, and even to some extent we will see this in the parable itself, but you will quickly see the unmistakable pictures of redemption, um, love of the father for his son that chooses his son's bride, and, and the Lord Jesus is the bridegroom and the church is glorious bride and so on. And it's important for me to also add that since there is insufficient historical evidence to understand every aspect of the ancient Jewish wedding ceremonies, 
We want to be careful that we don't unwittingly fabricate the concepts here to substantiate some kind of a eschatological system. Now, having said that, as I've studied the various aspects of, of these customs, I believe that there are some that can withstand the scrutiny of scholarly verification. And I believe that, therefore, in the similitude of the Jewish marriage, there is a picture of Christ as the bridegroom who has purchased his bride with his very blood. Indeed, we are told in Ephesians 5, verse 25, that he gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and blameless. And as we look at some of these customs, we also can see pictures of a groom that will someday come for his bridal church. Indeed, the Spirit of God has spoken to us through John's vision in, John, or in Revelation 19, verse 7, where we read, Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Now, I do not want to read more into this parable than what is there. So keep in mind that the ultimate theme, and I believe the ultimate purpose of the parable, is to simply underscore the need to be ready, the need to be spiritually prepared to meet the Lord. Now, to give you the background on the Jewish marriage and wedding festivities and traditions, as we look at history, we see that there is a general consensus that the ancient wedding ceremony consisted primarily of three stages. And we still see some of this in the Near East today, even in other cultures outside of Judaism. But again, it's important to note that there was probably great variation from family to family, even as we have in our wedding ceremonies. Everybody kind of does things a little bit different, but there are some things that tend to be the same. The first thing that we see as we look at Jewish wedding customs is that they would have in the first stage what we would call an engagement or an arrangement. Now, all of the marriages in those days were arranged marriages, and the father, would, as the head of the household, would find a bride for his son. And a contract would be made by the father of the bride and the groom, and the young people, many times they were children, had little, if anything, to say about it. I know that sounds terrible, but it's interesting to note that the divorce rate among them was virtually non-existent compared to the way it's done today. Now, I know some of you are going to say, well, let's get together and start pairing up our kids here. I'm not necessarily saying that, but that's certainly how they did it in those days. And it's interesting that as we look at it, the superior wisdom, frankly, of the fathers would take into account all of the, all of the necessary components of a happy and lifelong and life-fulfilling union. And then what you would see is that as the children would come more of age, uh, the joy of romance would quickly emerge from this very prudent arrangement. And during this engagement period, the things such as the, the work compensation would be negotiated to be paid to the bride's family and a dowry had to be paid to the bride's father. And then there was another stage, a second stage, which was the betrothal stage, or really uh, 
that time when they would literally publicly exchange vows between the bride and the groom. By the way, it was not until more recent times that rabbis were even included. They typically did this among family members. Now, this was a time, this betrothal period was was uh, a totally binding agreement. And in fact, you were at that point officially considered to be married. And uh, though, though the two had not physically consummated the marriage and they were not living together. Uh, in fact, if the husband uh, at this point were to die, the wife would be considered a widow. And the betrothal could only be broken on the grounds of adultery by a legal transaction, or a legal divorce. You will recall with Mary and Joseph, they were betrothed to one another. Uh, Joseph discovered that his wife was with child and he knew he was not the father. So he was going to quietly put her away by getting a writ of divorcement. Now, this typically this betrothal period typically lasted for several months, sometimes as much as a year. In fact, the young man at this particular stage was exempted from military service, according to Deuteronomy 20 and verse 7. And the young man would then apply himself to some trade. He would establish his career. He would begin to save his money. And he would also go and prepare a place for his bride that he would eventually bring to his home. And the bride's family would prepare for the wedding festivities and, and uh, the, even the wedding clothes were to be prepared by the bride. Now, as a footnote, any student of Scripture will see the glorious theme in the New Testament that the church was betrothed to Christ in eternity past according to the Father and Sovereign choice and she will be presented to him at the glorious rapture. So this is the concept then of the betrothal period. And then the third stage would be the final, the, the, the wedding feast, sometimes called the time of consummation. And this final stage should be one that would cause us all as believers to get excited as we see some of the parallels. But now having been away for many months and the accommodations now ready, the bride and the groom are both consumed with, with sheer joy and, and the unremitting passion, uh, longing to see one another. And while the bride would have a general idea of when her groom was going to come, she would not know the precise moment. So at an hour unknown to the bride, very often on an unannounced night, the bridegroom would gather his groomsmen and they would light torches. And this would signify that you're in the wedding party. And then they would make their way to the bride's home. And as his small entourage made their way down the streets, the procession would gradually grow. Families would see the lights and they would hear the shout of the groomsmen, Behold, the bridegroom cometh. And quickly, the people would throw on their wedding garments. They knew it was coming sometime, and now is the time. And the excitement would fill the air, and they would join the procession. Others would run down the streets, and they would tell the friends and neighbors what was happening. And quickly, the word would spread, and within a matter of minutes, the streets would be filled with excited guests. Because remember now, a wedding feast was a greatly anticipated social event. 
It was a very special thing because it would typically last for days. And so finally, the sound would reach the ears of the yearning bride. And of course, the shouting would serve its purpose, and that is to alert her that your groom is coming to take you unto himself. So get ready. Quickly. And of course, at that point, the bridesmaids would fly to her side to help dress her. The air would be electric with excitement because the groom is coming to take his bride. And then, interestingly enough, the procession would typically stop outside the bride's home or at some other predetermined place. The groom would never enter the home and he would, of course, wait on her to finish get ready. Uh, an opportunity there to learn patience. Certainly um, any young groom knows that he needs to learn that because he will spend many years waiting on his bride. And then eventually she would come out to meet him with her bridesmaids, her face veiled in keeping for her husband. And then together they would light their torches and they would leave the parents' home almost in a symbolic gesture and they would join the torchlit procession and make their way back to the bridegroom's father's house for the wedding feast. And many times that would last for seven days. We see a hint of that, for example, in the story of Samson in Judges 14:12. And then after arriving at the father's house and after greeting the guests many times, and again, it didn't always work this way, but many times it would. A close companion, a close friend, maybe as we would call it, the best man of the groom would take the bride's hand and place it in the hand of her groom. And they would excuse themselves and they would enter into the hoopah, which is the bridal chamber. And thus they would physically consummate the wedding and fulfill the covenant that had been made nearly a year before in many cases and after the sacred physical union had been completed, the groom would exit the chamber and announce to the guests and the wedding party that the covenant had been consummated. Let the feasting begin. Now, with that background, we return to the Lord's warning in the parable of the bridesmaids, revealing again his passionate desire to warn those who think they are ready but are not. Now, before we look at it, one more word of caution. We want to be careful. I do not believe this is an allegory where every single word and every detail has some special significance. There's a real danger of reaching beyond a text and falling into the camp of mystical speculations and you ultimately end up in theological la-la land. And that's a bad place to be and unless you're a best-selling author or a Christian contemporary artist, or a faith healer, or a megachurch pastor where sound doctrine doesn't seem to matter. But where it matters, we want to be very careful. So therefore, this is simply, I believe, a parable that illustrates the same theme that Jesus has been talking about. Namely, that I'm coming again, I'm coming to judge sinners, and I will be the Savior of the saints. So make certain which group you're in. Make sure you're ready. Now, as we look at the text, I believe it will reveal three crucial concepts for each of us to grasp. Number one, we will examine the pretense 
of readiness as we look at the two kinds of bridesmaids. Secondly, we must consider the midnight call when the Savior returns. And thirdly, we will ponder the final warning that Jesus gives. The pretense of readiness, the midnight call, and the final warning. First of all, in verses 1 and 2, we grasp this idea of the pretense of readiness. Notice what it says. Then the kingdom of heaven will be comparable to ten virgins. This could be translated ten bridesmaids. And by the way, they had to be virgins. It was required that they be chaste young women who had never been married. And they took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. And five of them were foolish and five were prudent. Now, I believe these virgins represent two kinds of people who profess Christ. And although they will look alike, there's going to be two kinds. Those who truly know Christ and those who don't. The true and the false. The prepared and the unprepared. Shall we say the tares and the wheat. And in this illustration of the ten virgins, it's interesting that both groups are quite certain that they are part of the eventual wedding party. But five of them are, and five of them are deceived, self-deceived. Now, the lamps that they have here could also be translated torch, and probably better so. And they were long wooden poles that had a piece of iron on the end, and around that iron had cloths that had been dipped in oil wrapped tightly around the iron and of course the oil would provide the fuel and would put off a very brilliant light and I believe the torches here symbolize one's outward identification with the grand procession of the church in other words one's profession of faith that should blaze forth the glorious gospel of Christ but as we look at it both the foolish and the prudent bridesmaids are convinced they are ready But the text says five of them were foolish and five were prudent. Now notice in verses three and four. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the prudent took oil in flasks along with their lamps. Now, folks, you want to remember that Jesus has already said that the the kingdom of heaven will be comparable to these two groups of people represented by the ten bridesmaids. Like these bridal attendants. You will have two groups that have attached themselves to the church. You will have those who profess Christ and who are looking for him to come, who, shall we say, will have the proper wedding attire in terms of of knowing Christ genuinely as Savior. And they will have torches that will have the oil, but there will be others that will not be this way. Those who will have a profession of faith, but not a possession of it. And the foolish virgins, therefore, had nothing with which to light their torch. They had no oil. The oil, I believe, symbolizing true saving grace, genuine saving faith. They did not have, if you want to put it this way, the oil of salvation. All they had was an empty profession. They will remain in darkness, therefore, They're incapable of shining forth the glory of God. They're unable to walk in the light of his glory. They're certainly not part of the wedding party that they thought they were a part of. And as we look at the parable, we see that the cavalcade continues. It proceeds to the father's father of the groom's house, but they took no oil with them. 
which means, again, they were spiritually unprepared. They were negligent. This is reminiscent of Jesus' parable that we've studied in the past in Matthew 21. Remember the man that tried to crash the king's wedding party. He refused to wear the proper attire of saving grace that the, that the king himself had provided for the invited guests. And as a result, the presumptuous guest was thrown into the darkness, according to Matthew 22:13, where Jesus said there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Likewise, what Jesus is pointing out here is that there will be many who will appear to be spiritually prepared for the Lord's return. But it will be a pretense of readiness. It will not be genuine. They will look like every other person that professes Christ. They will have attached themselves to the church. But they never entered through the narrow gate of brokenness over sin. They never truly loved the Lord Jesus Christ. They were never really willing to deny themselves. They wanted to do their own thing. They never submitted to the Lordship of Christ and humble obedience. Their faith was therefore, as James 2 would say, a dead faith that cannot save. They had the torch of outward identification, but they lacked the oil of inward regeneration. They had, therefore, the veneer of transformation and power, but not the reality of it. As we sometimes would say in our vernacular, they are those who are all sizzle and no steak. And this is the great concern of Jesus. Now, though I would not want to press this point, but the even split of 50-50 here, five that were foolish and five that are wise, may well represent the ratio of true versus false believers in the church today. I don't know. Uh, I tend to think it would probably be much greater than that, especially when I consider Jesus' words in Matthew 7 and other passages that there will be few who will find the narrow gate, but there will be many who will go through the broad, both ways saying this way to heaven, but only one ultimately leading to it. And whatever the percentage may be, certainly it is one great enough to warrant the Lord's reoccurring and very unpopular reminder that not everyone who thinks he belongs to God really does. And that's the horror of this concept. And sadly, this tragic reality will persist even during the time of the tribulation. For ultimately, this is the generation that he is addressing, even though we all can understand the importance of being ready this side of his second coming as we await the snatching away of the saints in the rapture. Now notice the characteristics of the prudent or the wise bridesmaids representing true believers in verse 4. But the prudent took oil and flasks along with their lamps. In other words, these were the wise virgins. They were truly prepared. There's no pretense here. This, of course, would represent genuine believers who have made all of the proper spiritual arrangements to enter into the kingdom. And sometimes people will ask, well, what types of things would really validate the genuineness of one's faith? And this is a question that we have to ask ourselves. I cannot look at you, nor can you look at me and know for sure. But certainly there are certain evidences in terms of fruit that one will bear. For example, if we 
look at what validates, shall we say, the oil of true saving faith in 1 John, we see that we would have to have a biblical understanding of Christ, a biblical understanding of sin, obedience, and love. Let me give you just a few verses. In chapter 1 and verse 6 in 1 John, if we say that we have fellowship with Him, in other words, if you say that you're truly born again, and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. It's very straightforward. In chapter 2, verse 3, Now by this we know that we know Him, if we keep His commandments. He who says, I know Him, and does not keep His commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in Him. Chapter 2, verse 9, He who says he is in the light and hates his brother is in darkness until now. Chapter 2, verse 15, If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Chapter 3, verse 10, In this the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. Chapter 3, verse 17, Whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? The point is, it doesn't. Chapter 5 and verse 2, By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep His commandments. You see, folks, this is the oil of, of inward purity and power. People who are truly prepared to meet the coming Savior will be people who have a deep love for God and a secret devotion to His glory. They will be people who have genuine humility that mourns over sin, that hungers and thirsts for righteousness, resulting in measurable spiritual growth. They will be people that understand the importance of being separated from the world. They will have a passion to know God and to obey God and to love God and to serve God. You will look at their lives and you will see a visible commitment to the local church. They will submit to that church where they will exercise their spiritual gifts within the body. There will be a love in their hearts for other believers, a love for the brethren. There will be a life that is consistent with the scriptures where we are called to be dedicated to prayer. We will also be dedicated to the Great Commission. We want to see other people come to know Christ and to grow in the grace and the knowledge of Christ. And you'll look at the, this type of a person and you will see an anxious longing to see the Savior face to face. And my friend, if these characteristics are foreign to you, you're deceiving yourself. Your profession of faith may only be a pretense of readiness, a torch without oil. Well, obviously, this is Jesus' concern for all who profess Him as Savior and Lord especially the tribulation generation, because for them, there will be no second chance. Now, you think about that. There was a second chance for some, even in Jesus' day. Undoubtedly, some of the Pharisees and scribes who hated Christ and condemned Him to death later repented and believed. Paul was such a one, wasn't he? A Pharisee of the Pharisees that later believed. Obviously, there had to have been, been many other former Christ-haters who believed because they were later added to the church at, at Pentecost and thereafter. They had a change of heart. There was a second chance. But dear friends, when Jesus comes the second time, there will be no second chance, unlike the first time He came. 
So we see the pretense of readiness in the foolish virgins. And we see the genuine preparedness in the wise virgins. But notice in verse 5, now while the bridegroom was delaying, delaying, they all got drowsy and began to sleep. Now again, obviously the bridesmaids had some idea of when the festivities would begin, when the groom would come, but neither the foolish nor the wise remained on 24-hour watch. I think that's understandable. Remember, by the way, the Lord's return may seem to be delayed to us because we anxiously await his arrival, but not so from his perspective, because in his sovereign timetable, everything is working perfectly on schedule and he will come exactly when he has decreed that he will come. But as we look at this idea of them being drowsy and they began to sleep, frankly, as I've studied it, I I don't see the text offering me any explanation as to why these ladies got drowsy and fell asleep. And so there's no need to speculate. And, uh, you know, all we would do would would possibly get ourselves into trouble here. So I don't want to speculate that uh, they had fallen into some state of apathy or repose or whatever. But certainly, all of us who long for his return, his return understand that life's got to go on. You know, it's impossible to remain in a state of constant hypervigilance, to be, shall we say, awake all of the time. And I don't believe the Lord requires this. And how tragic it is when you see people that are convinced of the very day that Jesus is coming and they put on white robes, and you've read this before, they go up onto some mountain and... And they pray and, you know, they've quit their jobs and many of them run up their credit cards, I found out. It was interesting. Uh, you know, why not? Let somebody else pay it off. I'm going to heaven. They get on top of a mountain and sing the king is coming, you know, until they get hungry and they realize they got the wrong date. It's a tragic thing. But yes, we must be ready. We've got to be spiritually prepared. We have to remain confident that he's going to come because we, we don't know what the exact hour would be. And in fact... Even in the tribulation generation, the one that he specifically has in mind here, they will know the general time frame of when Jesus is coming, the signs that he has given and so on. But they're not going to know the exact moment that he will come. And as you think about it, life is going to be very difficult for them, extremely difficult for them. There will be great suffering, as we have discovered. And many may even think that he has delayed his coming. But even for them... They must continue with the necessary activities of life for physical survival to to faithfully serve him until he comes and so on. But notice the panic and the hopelessness that will result from spiritual neglect when the bridegroom comes as we look at, secondly, the midnight call. Verse six, but at midnight there was a shout, behold, the bridegroom come out to meet him. Now, I don't want to read more into the text than what is there. But I find that it is fascinating to note that according to rabbinic tradition, the Messiah is supposed to come to earth at midnight. It's also interesting that in Exodus 12, especially in verse 29, we see that the Lord struck all of the firstborn in the land of Egypt at midnight. But God passed over those who were saved by the blood of the Passover lamb. And as you think about it, that event at the midnight hour triggered the release of the covenant people. It was midnight, that midnight hour 
that was the hour of judgment for the Egyptians who were unprepared, but it was the hour of salvation for the people of promise who were prepared. So, knowing the time was near, the bridesmaids were probably gathered together in the bride's home, and they were, again, unsure of the exact time of arrival. They had probably fallen asleep here, as we see. And and suddenly at midnight, the shout comes, Behold, the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Now, the next scene becomes one of great alarm and even panic, beginning in verse 7. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. In other words, immediately the, the bridesmaids reached for their torch, the torch that would identify them as part of the wedding party, as official participants that would go to the father's house. But notice... The foolish virgins were unprepared. It says, and the foolish said to the prudent, give us some of your oil for our lamps are going out. Now, again, Jesus offers no explanation here for their negligence because everyone has their own excuse, right? Everybody has their own reason why they haven't placed their faith in Christ. And certainly in that hour of coming judgment and for some It will be when they pass through the veil of this life at death. Everybody's got their excuse, but it doesn't matter what the excuse is. Because no excuse will have any merit. Because all have been warned, and duly so. It's as if Jesus is saying, you knew when I was coming. I warned you over and over and over to be ready. And the point now is it's too late. But the prudent answered, saying, no, there will not be enough, not enough oil for us and you, too. In other words, we're helpless to help you. There's nothing we can do. Go instead to the dealers and buy some for yourselves. The point being, when it comes to spiritual preparedness, dear friends, you're on your own. There's nothing that anybody else can do. You have to do business with God on your own, in your heart. No one else, not the church. Not your pastor, not some denomination, not your parents, not your spouse. No one has the power to grant forgiveness and impart the righteousness of Christ for salvation. It cannot be bought. It cannot be earned. It can only be given. And it can only be given by the one who grants mercy and grace to those who plead in brokenness of heart for forgiveness so that they can receive that which they do not deserve. God underscores this amazing truth through the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 51, verse 1. He says, Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. So here we see the foolish virgins scrambling around here. They're still looking for something that will light their torch. They can't find it. And they continue to go to the wrong source. Verses 10 and following, then we read, And while they were going away to make the purchase, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding feast. And the door was shut. 
And later the other virgins also came, saying, Lord, Lord, open up for us. But he answered and said, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Dear friends, what a tragic end awaits those who are unprepared. What a tragic end awaits those like the foolish virgins who had convinced themselves that they were a part of the wedding party, but they were not. Like so many professing Christians, one day will cry out, Lord, Lord, open up for me, only to hear the shocking words, Truly, I say to you, I do not know you. In other words, your profession was a sham. Oh, you may have deceived others. You may have deceived your husband, your wife, your parents, your pastor, your church. But you didn't deceive me. I I never knew you. We never had any fellowship. There was no love in your heart for me. You had no desire to be a part of me, to worship me, to serve me. We never had any relationship. Depart from me. I, I don't know you. Jesus offered a similar illustration of this same horrific tragedy in Luke chapter 13, beginning in verse 25. Here's what he said. Once the head of the house gets up and shuts the door, and you begin to stand outside and knock on the door saying, Lord, open up to us. Then he will answer and say to you, I do not know where you are from. Then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. And he will say, I tell you, I do do not know where you are from. Depart from me, all you evildoers. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. There when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but yourselves being cast out. Dear friends, please understand, the only ones who will enter into the wedding feast, who will enter into the kingdom of God, are those who have truly repented of their sins, those who have truly believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who have an unshakable devotion to His holiness, who joyfully and expectantly await His coming. Those are the ones who will be allowed entrance into the kingdom when the Son of Man appears. And for all others, the door will be shut. And I ask you, are you prepared? Or is it merely wishful thinking? Because if you're honest and you look at your life, there's no secret devotion to God. There's no real love in your heart for Him. There's no quiet, abiding walk with the Savior that would indicate that you know Him and He knows you. Friends, you may fool me. You may fool others, but you'll not fool God. You'll not fool Him. And unfortunately, we live in our culture that gives you every opportunity to keep up the veneer, to keep up the sham. Well, we've seen the pretense of readiness and considered the midnight call. Finally, we ponder the final warning. By the way, this is the fifth time in Jesus' prophetic discourse that He has called upon the tribulation generation to be ready. He says in verse 13, Be on the alert then. 
In other words, here's the warning. Be on the alert then, for you do not know the day nor the hour. It's interesting to note that on the previous day, Jesus had yet again offered the same theme of this merciful warning. And there he said in Luke 21, beginning in verse 34, Be on guard that your hearts may not be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and the worries of life. And that day come on you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all those who dwell on the face of all the earth. But keep on the alert at all times, praying in order that you may have strength to escape all these things that are about to take place. And to stand before the Son of Man. Well, I pray that the door to the kingdom will never be shut to you. Indeed, today the door remains open. There's still opportunity. I pray that you will take advantage of that opportunity if you don't know Christ. For some, the dreadful sound of the closing of the door will be at their deathbed. And for others perhaps, when the bridegroom comes. Either way, dear friends, that will be the sound of finality and the sound of eternity. Dear friends, do not pass through the veil of this life only to discover that you have deceived yourself and it's too late. For someday the Son of Man will come And shout the midnight cry. Behold, the bridegroom comes for some, but others he'll deny. Those who begged for saving grace, who repented and believed, became the bride who'd see his face from sin's dread fate reprieved. But those who lived the Christian sham, like the virgins unprepared, will hear the kingdom door be slammed, his glories never shared. Be warned, the terror of the Lord awaits pretentious faith. Godliness in form alone, bereft of saving grace. Be readied with salvation's oil to light your torches bright. Let not deceit your future foil and leave you in sin's night. But cry aloud for mercy's joy and to the groom be wed. Forever then his love and joy as the bride for whom he bled. Let's pray together. Father, we praise You for the grace that has been extended to all. And we thank You for the constant warnings that You have given us through Your Word. And Lord, I pray that You would move upon any heart that remains in darkness. Any heart that is maybe caught up in some kind of a religious sham that is so indicative of these days of apostasy. Lord, may we all be alert. May we we be looking with great anticipation for the coming of the groom to snatch away his bride. Lord, may we all be faithful until that day arrives. We pray all of this in the precious name of the lover of our souls, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. 
You've been listening to pastor, Bible teacher, and author David Harrell. For more information or to order additional tapes or CDs of Pastor Harrell's messages, please visit cvctn.org or call 615-746-0113.